Okay, so this is Sunday morning, November 18th. Our message this morning is called Manifest. And uh, we're going to jump right in the Word here in a minute. Y'all turn to Corinthians 12. I'm going to talk to you while you're turning there. To get to the book of Corinthians, you would start in the New Testament. You would work through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then be in Corinthians. We'll read to you, good job, Steve, we'll read to you from the 12th chapter in just a minute. But I wanted to share something with you. The word manifest, right? I actually was looking at the word manifestation in Corinthians. We're going to read it in a minute, how it appears in the NIV. The manifestations of the Spirit. But when you look up the word manifestation in the dictionary, it's one of those words that it tells you, see such and such word, right? And it says, to see the word manifest. So I thought I would read you something about this. I thought it was interesting. The word manifest is a noun, means a public declaration or an open statement. Sometimes you see that written as a manifesto, right? The creed of an organization that they want to make public. Also as a noun, in the shipping industry particularly, but now in the aero industry, it's a list or invoice of passengers or goods. So the word manifest as a noun begins to speak about containing something, right? An open declaration about what is inside. When you look at this as a uh, verb, it says to show plainly, to make appear distinctly, to put beyond question or doubt, to display or exhibit. How about that? When you manifest something, you are trying to show something Plainly, as an adjective, if you use the word manifest as an adjective, it says to make evident to the senses, apparent, to be distinctly perceived, to make obvious to the understanding, easily apprehensible, plain, get this one, not obscure or hidden. One of the things that I think is beautiful about that is in the context of the scripture that we're going to read, and we'll start in Corinthians 12, we're speaking about ways in which God wants to make His Spirit less obscure, less hidden, immediately obvious, show plainly, show you He's on board with you, all of those things. In Corinthians 12, starting in the first verse, says, Now about the spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, by the way, you ever had a pastor say something like that to you? I don't want you to be ignorant. Most of us would be offended at the thought that anybody would suggest we were ignorant in any area. The Apostle Paul often had a sharp tongue. You'll find out people that love you are willing to step upon your toes. All healing, all true godly character is derived from somebody that loves you, be it God or someone standing next to you who loved you enough to tell you you were wrong about something. If you knew you were wrong, you probably wouldn't be doing it. This is why David said, It is like oil upon my head that a righteous man would strike me. It's a kindness, and I will not turn away from it. In my life, the best things that have ever happened to me is I've gotten good and offended over a subject. That allowed me to study. It allowed me to consider the various possibilities. And unfortunately, and fortunately... At times, it allowed me to see that I was wrong and I needed to change. 
Paul says his desire for this church is that they not be ignorant about spiritual gifts. What's particularly interesting about that to me is that in the first chapter and the seventh verse, he said, you lack no spiritual gifts. They were not ignorant because they were not operating in their churches. In some ways, they just weren't operating correctly. So one of the focuses of this book is to correct the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. In today's church, we've taken very interesting stands. We've divided up into groups. This has become the most divisive subject in all of the kingdom. The largest Protestant stance that I'm aware of is these simply do not exist anymore. It's a whole lot easier to not have to deal with them being used improperly if we just say they don't exist. The problem is I've experienced them. And the man with the experience is no longer at the mercy of the man that merely has an argument. Somebody can say all day long that gold doesn't exist, but if you hold the bar of it, that argument makes very little sense to you. And I found myself in a Protestant church where I was told that these didn't exist, but having experienced them, it left me at an impasse. So some of what I teach you today has come right out of my personal experience. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. When you were uh, pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Have you noticed that in the church world often the only thing ever spoken about supernaturally is the devil? Stay away from Ouija boards. The devil could use that. Stay away from the magic eight ball. The The devil could use that. Don't play Dungeons and Dragons. The devil could use that. But when we speak about the kingdom of God, it's no, no. When the last apostle died, God stopped speaking. The book itself, that is the only revealed word of God there is, period. Why is it that the devil still moves and is active on the earth, but God is not? Interesting, isn't it? Therefore, I tell you that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. This is a little bit like playing Jeopardy. When you play Jeopardy, answers appear on the board. And what do you have to do? You have to guess what the question is. You say, what is... Depends on what the question was, right? We don't know what the problems were in this church. You're left to surmise that. One of the things that apparently was a question is when we're speaking by the Spirit, what are the possibilities? And Paul seems to be answering that. We're getting to a point, though. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. God's desire is that His Spirit would thoroughly work in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Before we get into anything else, let's let's get right down to brass tacks. The reason that God wants His Spirit to be on board in the church, the reason that God wants the indwelling of the Spirit in believers is for our good. It is not so a pastor can glory in some act you did publicly. It is not so that you can get a Holy Ghost merit badge on your belt and show everyone how spiritual you are. It is for the common good of the believers in the church. Anybody in here ever been really sick outside of our first row? Hmm? You'd like to run into somebody that the Spirit of God manifests in their life in healing, wouldn't you? You ever really had to make a very difficult decision and there was somebody in your life that seemed like they had the right answers and yet something was unsettling about them? 
It'd be good to know somebody that was operating and distinguishing between spirits, wouldn't it? Have you ever had such a perplexing situation that you felt only an answer from God would help you? It'd be good to know somebody who moved in word of wisdom or knowledge, wouldn't it? These things are given for the common good. And the fact that they seem less businesslike, maybe unrefined, they don't fit well within a denominational structure does not mean that it is not God. In fact, I think it's probably necessary that we look at our Hebrew roots in the Scripture. The 39 books of the Old Testament almost solely deal with the nation of Israel, the people called the Jews or the Hebrews. And when the New Testament speaks about the Holy Spirit, it is speaking about something to them called the Ruach HaKodesh. The very nature of this word suggests something that we'll get into more. It suggests a personality, a distinct function of God. And if we're going to read the word Holy Spirit in the New Testament, we need to know what it meant to the original audience. Wouldn't you agree? See, we are a Western people reading an Eastern book. And sometimes the language, the culture, is a little bit foreign to us. All of the kingdom is about admitting what's foreign to you and submitting to what God is trying to teach you. That's why missionaries travel from one side of the planet to the other to bring the gospel. There is something humbling about having to say, you know, I'm kind of ignorant in that area and I would like to learn. But when you get to that place, the Spirit can guide you into all truth. So turn with me to Psalm 139. Tell me when you're there. Easiest way to find Psalms is just to open to the middle of your Bible. Unless you have an enormous concordance, then you'll end up somewhere in Proverbs. In Psalm 139, 139, I'm sorry, did I not tell y'all? Oh. Psalm 139. We have three distinct Hebrew concepts about the Holy Spirit. The first one is, they considered the Spirit of God to be everywhere. You hear this in the speech in Psalm 139. Verse 7, Where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. That word is sheol. It literally means the abode behind the grave. Says if I go to the place where God dwells in the highest heaven, your spirit is there. If I go to the lowest depths in the earth, even beyond the grave, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. One of the concepts about the Holy Spirit was that He was everywhere. In Jeremiah, you don't have to go here. I'm going to read this to you. You can write it down, though. I rarely lie when I'm preaching, but you should take notes. Go back and check. Jeremiah 23, 23 says this, Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? How many times have we been tempted to think, Oh, wait, we need to pray and wait for God to show up, as if God is a long ways away. How many times have you thought, if God doesn't go with me, I can't go? The Bible declares that God is everywhere, all over the earth, that there's nowhere that you can go and Him not be there. 
How about this in Acts 17? Here's one I've quoted to you all constantly. It's Acts 17, 27. It says, God did this, speaking of arranging men on the globe, setting boundaries for them. God did this so that men would seek out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. You never thought much about somebody, whoever it might be that you think is wicked, having God around him all of the time, have you? But God's presence is around the righteous and the wicked all of the time, just for different purposes. First Hebrew concept I want you to know about God's Spirit is that He's everywhere, that they knew that He was everywhere. Here comes the second. You hear that, Elizabeth? That's for your homework. Here comes the second. It's in number seven. Go ahead and turn there. This is one you may not be aware of. You probably knew God was everywhere. You may not know about this, though. So in number seven, that would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then the book of Numbers, and you're going to count to the seventh chapter. Good job, Cody. Number seven, the 89th verse. How about that? Think Moses got long-winded sometimes? If you think Moses got long-winded, you should read the song. David gets into the hundreds of verses. And Luke apparently was influenced by it because he does the same thing. Longest chapters in the New Testament are in the book of Luke. So in the 89th verse of Numbers, it says, When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the Ark of the Testimony, and he spoke with him. Moses heard the voice of God coming from a specific place. Moses taught the people about God, and when he taught them, he taught them that God dwelled between those two cherubim. Here's one right down, but you don't have to turn there. It's in Chronicles 28:18. It says, and the weight of the refined gold for the altar of incense was thus and so. He also gave him the plan for the chariot, that is the cherubim of gold, that spread their wings and shelter the ark of the covenant of the Lord. They called above the ark where these two cherubim stretched forth their wings a chariot for God. How interesting is that? The Hebrews carried with them an ark of the testimony of what God had done for them. It had inside of it pieces of their law, actually the whole tablets of their law. It had inside of it things that symbolized life, like Aaron's staff that budded, God's provision, like manna. But above it, there were cherubim. These were heavenly creatures with their wings stretched forth, and they referred to it as the chariot of God. Because although God was everywhere, He also traveled locally to check things out. Now, this is a contradiction in the mind of us in the West, is it not? We're Greek linear thinkers. A plus B must equal C. The Hebrew concepts about God are not like this. They see contradictions as glorifying God. God can both be everywhere and also travel somewhere. And they see no problem with that. It speaks of how big God is. Psalm 18.10 and also 2 Samuel 22 speak of God mounting the cherubim and flying. Now, if you were a Hebrew and you knew God was everywhere, why might you think of Him as traveling on a chariot? Chariots in the day were a sign of royalty, of divinity. You would think of Him traveling on a chariot going to war with you, on a chariot going to protect you, to provide for you. So, although God was everywhere, they saw Him as traveling on a chariot throne. 
When you get into some of the stranger descriptions in the book of Ezekiel in the first chapter, you find out that this throne has interlocking wheels and living creatures. And the Spirit of God moves in it and out of it, and no matter which direction it's moving, it's moving forward. I've tried to draw that thing a hundred times. I, I don't get it. But I know this. John, some thousand years later, describes in a different way the very same thing. God on a chariot throne. That's in Revelation 4. The Hebrews saw God's presence going with them as a chariot everywhere they went. Thirdly, this might be the most important for what we're discussing today. Not only was God's Spirit everywhere, not only was God said to be on a chariot riding cherubim, God's Spirit was always represented by fire. In Exodus 3, and you can turn there, it's an easy book to find. It's the second one in your Bible. I know most of you have that memorized, but for me, we'll read it. In Exodus 3, starting in the second verse, it says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire. Have you ever seen fire that is really raging? It makes a noise. Has anybody ever experienced that? If you've ever been by a house that's on fire, it literally sounds a little bit like a windstorm. I guess it's the expanse of gases. I have no idea. One of you much smarter than me will probably figure that out. How about in a movie? You ever seen a, a blowtorch, a flamethrower? It almost makes a sound, I don't know, like rushing wind. And from the fire whips out in every direction these little curls of fire. In the Eastern mindset, they might call those tongues of fire. Here, we just call it flames of fire. You don't have to turn here, but in Exodus 13, God is described as traveling with them at night in a pillar of fire, giving them light even in darkness. In Exodus 19, they said that God descended upon Mount Sinai in a raging fire. In Exodus 24, the people said, when we see God, He looks like a consuming fire. We're talking about God upon the mountain where they were standing and worshiping. Because they saw God as a fire, and they saw God moving everywhere, but God traveling with them in warfare and in provision, enthroned, they looked for certain things. Moses was told to build the tabernacle. This tabernacle is not a building. It's not made of cinder block or brick. It's not made of stone of any kind. A tabernacle is a temporary dwelling, something that you only live in for a short span of time. And this tabernacle was covered with skins of various colors. Amazing. And when they had this tabernacle that God instructed them to build, fire descended to fill it. In Leviticus 9, 23, I'll read it to you. It says, Moses and Aaron then went to the tents of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. The people had built according to God's design a temporary structure. And the very first time that they went there to do what God said to do, which was make a sacrifice for the priesthood, God showed up in a visible 
tangible way. He wanted all of the world to know that he was in Israel. And so he showed up as a raging, consuming fire. Later on, David revamps this tabernacle. He takes this tabernacle, this portable dwelling, and he moves it up onto a mountain called Zion. It means mountain of the Lord's brightness. They put it on top of a hill so that the nations who were traveling throughout Israel, going back and forth on their trade routes, could look and see that God of Israel dwelled in that tabernacle. Now, mind you, they believe he dwelled everywhere. They believe also that he dwelled on a chariot throne. But most specifically, they believe that he also dwelled in a tent with them in Israel. In 1 Chronicles 21, David calls on God, and God fills David's tabernacle with a visible, tangible fire. That's the 25th through 28th verse. As time goes on, though, we move from a portable tabernacle, a temporary dwelling, to something that was permanent. The Bible speaks about your body, by the way, as a tabernacle. Those of you familiar with the King James, it even speaks about the incarnation of God in Jesus as Him tabernacling among us. 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of your body, NIV says tent. The word is the same thing. And it means a portable dwelling. Do you plan on living in this body forever? Mine's wearing out now. I'm expanding it. That's good. We're building on new rooms all of the time. I give myself the heart attack test. You know, I slap it, and if it takes more than three minutes to stop jiggling, I figure my time in this tabernacle is short. God wanted to show His people, the special group of people on earth, that He dwelled in a temporary dwelling with them, but there was a day they would get a permanent dwelling with God. So they built Solomon's tabernacle. This is worth reading. So go to 2 Chronicles 7. If you're unfamiliar with 2 Chronicles, rather than me read the whole list to you and you get lost in it, start on the left-hand side of your Bible and turn past till you get to 2 Chronicles. All the first and seconds are together in the Old Testament. Tell me when you're in 2 Chronicles 7. Anybody in here ever planted a garden? You can talk to me. I'll cry and run out if you don't. When you walk past your garden, did you ever hear a vine straining? (laughs) Never, huh? Vines don't have contractions to produce fruit, do they? No forceps have to be used on a grapevine to get a grape. They naturally dwell in the soil. They stretch forth their roots. They absorb the light of the sun in the water that comes from God. And the natural production of being a grapevine is that you produce grapes. There is nothing in all of the kingdom that is difficult about bearing fruit or about moving in gifts. It all comes from a principle called faith. And throw away all of your difficult definitions for faith. Faith can be redefined as trust. If you trust God, If you do what he says, just like grapevines when planted in the right soil and watered and given sun produce grapes, you'll produce everything that God wants for you. Any pressure that you've ever felt, 
any difficulties that have ever come along with it? It came from one of two things. Either the devil trying to keep you from receiving something God wanted for you, or some man trying to take glory in God's work in your life. And both are equally possible. And in some ways, both are the work of the devil. But when it is the product of God's Spirit, what happens is you hear something, you believe God, you begin to trust Him, and that trust is evidenced in your life in some kind of way. And it's not difficult. And nobody gets a special merit badge for it. You don't get to be displayed before all of the nations to show how holy some silver-haired preacher is in a nice suit and a fancy car. Did y'all make it to Second Chronicles? The seventh chapter in the first verse. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. They saw something. They saw a fire that originated in heaven and ended up in a temple on earth, and they called it the glory of God. This strong association with fire leads to one of the more famous stories in the Bible. Even the little kids have been told about Elijah and how Elijah stands before the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And he says, the God who answers by fire, He is God. This concept was very strong in the Hebraic community. They knew that God was everywhere, but they envisioned Him as above the ark of His presence. Not because He could be contained in it. Not because it was an idol to be worshipped. But because God said, I want you to build this and My name will dwell there. Then they envisioned Him inside of a tabernacle, a temporary dwelling or later a permanent temple. Not because He could be contained in it. Not because they were putting God in a box, but because they were being obedient to what God said do. They knew His name and His presence, His function would go with them. And it made them unique among all of the nations of the earth. Turn to Exodus 33. While you turn there, I want to give you a thought. Knowing that God is everywhere, knowing that He is on the move and at work in the earth by way of His chariot throne, knowing that He's represented by fire. All of these things were known to Moses. And yet Moses makes a very specific request in Exodus 33, starting in the 15th verse. You there? Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, Do not send us up from here. What could he possibly mean? I've already told you that he believed God's presence was everywhere. He meant go with us in a special way, a special relationship. God's presence surrounds every human being on the earth, but some are interacting with his presence in a special way. He says, uh, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me? (laughs) and with your people, unless you go with us. Well, obviously, Moses, it will be by the number of people in your church. It will obviously be by the amount you have increased tithes and offerings, how big your gymnasium is, 
whether or not you can get your congregation to Luby's faster than the Methodists. Moses, these are the ways that we judge spiritual leaders. Don't you know that? Moses was concerned. And he wasn't concerned that he wouldn't do a good job. He wasn't concerned that he didn't know God's Word. This is the man that spoke face to face with God. He was concerned that there would be no distinction between him and an ordinary guy if God's presence didn't go with him. So he says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? That was an honest moment spoken from a national leader, just him and God. It was recorded for your benefit. What makes you any different than every other person on the earth? What makes next door to me is a very sweet lady who is Hindu. What makes you any different from her? God's Spirit surrounds her. He does. He's all over the whole earth. God's Spirit surrounds you. What makes you any different? Apparently, if God's Spirit is leading you in your daily life, that makes a distinction between you and the rest of the world. Ephesians 2 says that those who are led away by disobedience are captive by the spirit of this world. Apparently, there is more than one spirit that can lead you on the planet. But I want to finish this Exodus 33. Look at the 17th verse. And the Lord, that word Lord there, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's in English called the tetratomagron. What a nice theological 50-cent word, right? means nothing. To the Jew, though, it was a word that you substituted in place of the name of God because God was so awesome to you, so powerful, and you believed that when He gave a command, unlike the church today, it should be obeyed. And He said, do not misuse My name. So they said, you know what? Unless it's absolutely necessary, although His name is Yahweh, Let's call him Adonai. Yahweh is my, the name that means covenant. He's the covenant name before God and his people. Adonai meant my owner and controller. Most of the time when a Jew spoke about God, they didn't refer to him as... I had an old football coach that called him the big skipper one time. I've heard people call him the big guy. All kind of craziness. When a Jew wanted somebody else to know who his God was, he called him his owner and his controller, Adonai. Doesn't it seem kind of silly then to write books and wonder whether or not Jesus can be your Savior without being your Lord? The only relationship that you have to him is if he is your owner and your controller. You said, but what about the Scriptures like Romans 10, 9 and 10 that say if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart? needs to be a true statement, friends. That was written to Christians who were facing death. And it cost them their very lives to stand up and make that statement. It was not written to the rock musician who was living a hellish life, but at the end of his concert says, Jesus is Lord. Or the pastor who was sleeping with his secretary but preached every Sunday. See, these are not the context that those words were written in. The context that they were written in was to a church who was being persecuted 
to death and yet would not turn away from the fact that Jesus was their owner and controller. How about that? So Moses asked, he says, look, if I've got to go do this, and by the way, Lord, what you've asked is a little difficult. We're going to establish a nation where there was no nation. We're going to go in and take their land, but you didn't tell them that uh, we were coming. How do we do that? God says that he will send his spirit with him. Exodus 33:17 says, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Name in Hebrew has to do with function. It doesn't mean, hey, Moses, I know. How, and his name wasn't Moses. It was Moshe. He said, it's not that God knew how to spell his name. It's that God knew the function of the man. We would say his reputation. God knew him to be what he said he was. For the church to do its work on earth, the knowledge of God's Word is not enough. We must have the presence of God in our midst to distinguish us from all the other people on the earth. The Hebrews were used to having the Holy Spirit in their midst. They were used to being able to point to fire that lit in a temple. By the way, they kept it burning all of the time. They were used to being able to say we were led by the Spirit in the desert. Jesus made an even greater claim, though. Go with me to John 14. You excited? We got to the New Testament. That only took me 45 minutes. Those of you that are new in this church, we spend most of our time in the 39 books of the Old Testament because I have found out that the only Bible the apostles carried was the 39 books of the Old Testament. They were still writing the 27 books of the New. When Philip witnessed to an Ethiopian eunuch, or when Stephen stood up and argued convincingly with his counterpart, they did it from the 39 books of the Old Testament. If you had to share Jesus with your neighbor and you did not have a New Testament, would you know how to do it? not wanting you to tear out the 27 books of the new. I love them. I'm taking it for granted that you're already so thoroughly familiar with them. All we need to do is cover where they came from. Is that true about you? What's been invested in you? Do you believe God saved you, that you deserve death and He saved you? What have you done with His salvation? It's not supposed to be difficult. Not supposed to be laboring pains for you. It's supposed to be the natural product of you dwelling in the light of His Word, the water of His fellowship, rooted in the doctrines of Orthodox Christianity. I said, but wait, Eric, your church is unorthodox. No, the rest of the world is unorthodox. We're doing what the early church did. What's unorthodox is to substitute God's Spirit for stained glass. What's unorthodox is to bring in smoke and lights and mirrors, as opposed to being distinguished because God's Spirit is with you. In John 14, there's a very special promise made. In the 15th verse, it says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. Boy, I preach that. And if you don't obey what he commands? How many of you have ever beat your chest and told somebody, But God knows what's in my heart. How does he know what's in your heart? I could make a pretty convincing argument that he knows what's in your heart by what you do. The question is, do you know what's in your heart? Tell me that you love your wife and your kids. Tell me that. 
Tell me it a hundred times a day, but you haven't seen them this year. Hmm. Jesus is number one. Jesus is number one. But I spend more time watching CSI than I do praying to him or reading his word. Okay. I would hate to find out these kind of things at the judgment. I would rather have an intimate relationship with him now that corrected me in little course corrections along the way rather than find out I had been on the right road but traveling the wrong direction for my entire lifetime. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. I don't know about you, but I've spent more time in court than I want to. I've had the misfortune of working for several people that had a propensity to be involved in lawsuits which put me in a position to have to testify. You want a counselor with you when you're in court. You want someone to stand with you before the judge and advise you of motions, what to do. The counselor never speaks on his own behalf. The attorney does not stand up before the judge and say, Judge, I think this. He makes motions on your behalf. The Holy Spirit is like a counselor. He's not speaking for himself. Everything that he does in your life is for your benefit. He will be with you forever, the Word says. The Spirit of truth. What's interesting about this is this is the same group of people he's speaking to that had seen God fill temples, that had seen God travel with them by way of the Spirit and believed that God was everywhere. And yet they're being spoken to as if this is a new relationship. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. He lives with you and will be in you. Israel was used to having God travel with them. They were used to being the representative of God's God on earth because his presence was with them. But Jesus makes an entirely new promise to them. God would no longer be in a pillar of fire on a mountain. The God who is everywhere was not going to fill a stone temple this time. He would set up his residence inside of a human being, the crowning jewel of his creation. This is a new claim. This had never occurred in the Old Testament. You see God come upon people for a specific task, but never to dwell there permanently. Interestingly enough, those of you that have read the end of the book the last chapter of Revelation ends with a summary of paragraphs that starts with these words. Now the dwelling of God is with men upon the earth. We find out that this whole story is about God making someone after His own function, after His own design, wanting that human being to fill the earth with the presence of God. But because of a sin problem that had to be dealt with, God could not dwell with them or them with God. Jesus changed that relationship. You no longer have to go to the Catholic Church and ask the Pope to allow you into the presence of God. You no longer have to beseech Martin Luther and make sure that your doctrine agrees with his to make it into the presence of God. In fact, you don't need any church leader. You don't need any human being. I think the Word says it this way. You need that no man should teach you, for God will teach you. There is a new relationship for believers on the earth, one that does not tax you. 
one that does not extort you, one that does not do evil in the name of Jesus. And it's the relationship between a believer and his God by way of the Holy Spirit. Moses said, what will distinguish us from every other people on the earth? The Spirit's presence was around all of the people. But Moses had a new relationship that shadowed ours. He would interact with God on a daily basis. God would interact with him on a daily basis. And they would speak face to face as friends. If your image of the Almighty God has been an angry man with a stick who wants to beat you for all the bad that you've done, you're wrong. He is a God who wants to be married to His people. He wants you to wake up with Him. He wants you to go to sleep with Him each night. My favorite psalm and the first one I ever learned, by the way, I I learned it because I got paddled for not learning it the week before in a Christian school. Thank God can't work through difficult circumstances. That's the only way He works. It's Psalm 121. It says, Will I look to the mountains for my help? No, I'll look to the Lord, the Maker of the heavens and the earth. And the word help there is the same word that Eve was called to Adam. Hebrew for Ezer. It means my very special helpmate like the other half of me. God wants a relationship where He is speaking to you intimately every day, with you, never separated from you. He wants to be a counselor, a confidant. What a special promise. Israel had never received that before. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. To travel out into the world and preach the gospel without the proper relationship with the Holy Spirit would leave God's people a little bit like orphans. People who have been told what to say but they don't know what to do in difficult circumstances. I can't help but look at the church worldwide and see how they react to social pressures, see how they react to difficult things, and go, wow, it's like they know what to say but have no idea what to do. In your own life, have you ever felt that way? God didn't intend for it to be like this. We have a counselor with us. John 7.37 You can write it down. I'm going to tell you about it. We're at a Feast of Tabernacles. Interestingly enough, it is the last and greatest day of the feast. And what is so neat about this feast is the word for feast in Hebrew has to do with a special event or a rehearsal for the event. It's called a mikra. Israel rehearsed for 1,600 years certain events, like the Passover. Every year, they were not actually having death pass over them, but every year they rehearsed the Passover. That's a lot of rehearsal, isn't it? Well, this feast was not the Passover. It was the Tabernacles. This is a feast where they rehearsed the time period where they dwelt in temporary dwellings. And on the last and greatest day of that feast, it just so happens they were singing a song that comes from Isaiah 12 about the wells of salvation. And part of the rehearsal was that they took a golden vessel, kind of like the one the offering box is sitting on, except it was golden. Here, that's, that's not even real stone. That's plaster that I painted to look like stone. They had a vessel like that made of gold, and it was filled with water. And they came out singing about the wells of salvation out of Isaiah 12. And they didn't know why. 
But they then poured from the golden vessel into 12 earthen vessels. It was at this very moment, the Bible says, the last and greatest day of the feast, Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah, stands up and says, if any man thirst, the Bible even says he said it in a loud voice. He wanted everybody there to hear. He waited to the climax of the festival and then stood and said, If any man thirst, let him come and drink of me. Now you read that. I read that and go, Sorry, Lord, I'm not Jewish. I don't have any idea what's going on here. Well, John knew that. And John wrote his book to believers worldwide. Believers who were often unfamiliar with Jewish customs, just like us. So John put something in the Greek equivalent of parentheses. There's a footnote in that verse. When you go look at it, do you know what John says? It says, by this, he meant the Holy Spirit who had not yet been poured out on those who believed because Jesus had not yet been glorified. He was writing it after the day of Pentecost about an event where Jesus was teaching that it would be possible to drink of the same substance that he was. How awesome is that? We don't have time to do it, but the story of Abraham and his promised son, Isaac, and needing a wife for his promised son. Does anybody know the name Abraham? It didn't start as Abraham. It started as Abram. Abram means exalted father. Would it be appropriate to think of God as an exalted father? Sure it would. God changed his name to Abraham. Anybody know what that means? Father of many nations. Would it be appropriate to think of God as the father of many nations? Of course it would. Well, the father of many nations, the exalted father had within his household, within his dwelling, a chief servant. His name was Eleazar. It means God the helper, one of the names given to the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And the exalted father sent out the man whose name means Holy Spirit to find a bride for his promised son who was supernaturally born. You know what her name was? Rebecca, like my niece. Her name means irresistible. The exalted father has sent out his Holy Spirit and is drawing people to his promised son who are irresistible to God. Did you know that the Bible says he delights in giving you the kingdom? We don't have a relationship. We are not sinners in the hands of an angry God. That was an American invention. And it's not that God didn't use it. God's Spirit is around all mankind trying to draw us into a deeper relationship with Him. And when we respond, He finds us irresistible. Do you know how the Holy Spirit identified Rebecca? Eleazar shows up with ten camels. The ten camels kneel before the well of salvation, much like the law brings people to a place where they can recognize and see what salvation is, why they need it. The woman Rebecca's response was to serve Eleazar, to bring not just water for him, but for everybody who was with him. And then something happened. The chief servant gave this beautiful bride gifts. When the Holy Spirit gives people gifts, in Greek it is charis, meaning grace, mata, meaning gifts, grace gifts. Your relationship responding to God, serving Him by being led by His Spirit, results in gifts. 
the gifts didn't show everybody how great Rebecca was. Rebecca didn't stand up and say, I am better than all other believers because I can do thus and so. You know what she was given? The church wouldn't like this very much today. I don't want it for my children. She was given a nose ring. I know, parents. None of us want to believe that it could possibly be, be biblical, but it is. Look, I can't even say it. But it is. And why a nose ring? Every animal on the planet can be led by putting a ring in its nose and pulling it around. He gave her a gold nose ring, symbolizing that she was divinely led. She didn't have to be tugged at or pulled. Her servant nature naturally led her to be able to hear from the Holy Spirit. And so she went and made her dwelling with the promised son and produced the fruit that they desired. She was given one other thing, gold bracelets. The works of her hands would be golden. The reason we lift our hands in worship is because we used to do bad things with these hands. But now without wrath or malice towards any human being, the works of our hands become golden again, as God intended. Our work is God's work now, loving the unlovable, spreading the knowledge of His kingdom wherever we go, boldly living out loud His words. <coughs> Psalm 143.10 says, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. If you are scared of what happens if I submit in those ways to the Holy Ghost, what happens is everywhere you put your foot becomes level ground. That's what happens. If you face death, you step over it. If you're bitten by a snake, you shake it off in the fire. It means you do the things that God calls you to do. Does that mean that Christians don't die or don't get sick? I've been sick all week. My sister sits here sick now. But it means we have hope even in the midst of our darkest hour. The Word says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he will rise again. Seven means perfection. In other words, and though you have perfectly failed in every way, there is hope for you. But where is our hope? What will distinguish us from every other people group on the earth? those who are led by a spirit. John 16:12 actually teaches that Jesus said, just like he was speaking here to you today, you know, Fred, Cody, there's more I could say to you. Hear this, more than you could now bear. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will lead you into all truth. There is something about the gospel that has to go beyond just what you can intellectually accept. There is something about the good news of Jesus that is more than in our natural ability we can bear. But the Holy Spirit, at our own pace, as we follow Him, will teach us everything that we need to know. You won't get bored during His sermons. You won't watch the clock waiting to eat. He will teach you in a way that communes with your spirit. You will simply know what you need to do in certain situations and then pray for the strength to do it. Well, the early church heard these promises and they were longing for them. They wanted Israel to be restored to its former glory, to the glory it had under Solomon, with a righteous king reigning in peace. 
in the visible presence of God with them. So every chance they got, they asked Jesus about that. And in the book of Acts, in the first chapter, the fourth verse, it says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. They didn't need to be reminded about what this gift was. It was a new relationship with God's Ruach HaKodesh. Do you remember that I told you even that word itself teaches us something about God? Ruach HaKodesh, or in Greek, it's Hagios Pneumaticos. Both words, whether Greek or Hebrew, have to do with a flowing current of air. You cannot have wind if the air is not moving. It's just air. Pneumaticos has to do with breath. Ruach is what God breathed into man. It has to do with the forceful movement of air. See, friends, by definition, God is on the move. The words that describe His Spirit describe something that is moving. The question is not, is God at work in the earth? The question is, are you working with Him? Or are you resisting Him? The charge that is leveled at the Pharisees in Acts 7.51, it's not, not that they didn't believe the right things. It's that they were stiff-necked, not divinely led, couldn't be pulled by God in any direction, and they resisted the Holy Spirit. It says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They had no long theological discussions about what this meant. Their church did not fragment into a thousand pieces over the meaning of this word. They understood exactly what it meant. God had showed up in a tangible way in the past, and he was going to show up in a tangible way for them now. And it would result in a new relationship where there was a counselor with them forever. But he adds these words. By the way, they interrupt him with a question. We're going to get the kingdom back then? And he says to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Greek word for this is dunamos, and it means dynamite. We're not talking about a weak, flickering candle in church art over someone's head. That is an absurd, ridiculous abomination of the truth. It has to do with God Himself, the same blazing power that set Himself up in a temple for all the nations to see, indwelling your life, so that when people look in your eyes, they see something different. When people examine your actions, something distinguishes you from every other people group on the planet. One of the lies that has been propagated lately is, oh, well, when you believe on Jesus, everything that you ever needed to happen with the Holy Spirit happens then. This is simply unsubstantiated in the book of Acts. Wednesday night I gave you five separate instances were people who had already professed belief in the name of Jesus and showed action received a second experience with the Holy Spirit. We walked through each one. 
maybe the most important one, is after Cornelius gets filled with the Holy Ghost in the book of Acts and speaks in other tongues, Peter goes and gives an account to the entire church in Jerusalem, all of the believers worldwide. And he says, they received the Holy Spirit in the same manner that we did. This ought to lay to rest forever Dallas Theological's arguments about the baptism in the Holy Ghost. The Bible emphatically declares that the believers, both Jewish and Gentile, received the same thing. We stretch all the way to the end of the book of Acts in the 19th chapter, and there are believers there who are called disciples. Disciples means somebody who is struggling to imitate Jesus. And Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Apparently, Paul was not raised in the Baptist church like I was, or he wouldn't have needed to ask that. He would have simply said, according to Dr. So-and-so Stanley, you've received everything that you ever needed the moment you called on the name of Jesus. But this is not what Paul said. He said, did you receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Don't get bogged down in what all of that means. Don't get bogged down in, well, to be baptized can be sprinkled or immersed. or blood. He likens it unto water. There needs to be an experience in our life where we have something that happens to us that is like being totally permeated with God's character, with God's Spirit. And it just so happens that on five separate occasions in the book of Acts, one of the first ways that God manifests His presence, one of the first ways that He makes a public declaration to all human beings that He is inside of this one, is that this little rudder called the tongue that steers a whole ship began to do something it had never done before. By the way, God showing up in fire. Do you remember how Acts 2 starts? Then suddenly, a sound like a violent rushing wind filled the room where they were. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. This is a blazing, flaming torch from heaven like filled all of the temples and all of the years past that comes from heaven and stretches out towards each one of them. Why? They needed to know that the same tangible presence that had filled the temples that gave them authority in the past now filled them as human beings. I experienced this. I experienced it in spite of myself. I experienced it without knowing what was happening to me in 1993. And the church leadership of the church I was a part of said it was the devil. If it was the devil, then the devil has been a part of spreading the gospel in my life for 15 years in about five states and two continents. If it was the devil, the devil is now responsible for seeing hundreds of people born again. And in every workplace I've ever been in, this working of the devil has left behind me Spirit-filled believers who now love Jesus. That would be the strangest working of the devil I have ever seen. Friends, I am here to tell you that your love for Jesus should be complemented by an interaction with His Spirit on a daily basis. And when that starts, there are 12 ways that the Bible says, I'm sorry, 9, that He manifests. We're going to close and go into worship here, but I want to give you these thoughts as we worship. And I'm going to invite you in any way that you want to, to respond. You can get up and go to Luby's if that's what you want to do. That's just fine with us. We're not going to beg anybody to receive a Corvette from God. 
But as we worship, we're all familiar with nine fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul wrote to the Galatian church and told them that those things were the byproduct of having the Holy Spirit in their life. But with a beautiful symmetry, Paul listed nine other things to the Corinthian church that are the manifesto, that are the public declaration that the Holy Spirit is in your church. It's interesting because the Holy Spirit is almost always in the Bible referenced like a dove. A dove has two wings, does it not? On each wing, there are nine special feathers that control the direction of its flight, like ailerons on an airplane. The fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit were meant to work together, not to be substitutes for each other. And if you're trying to fly around without gifts working in your life or your church, you're as lopsided as a dove that has been shot and is flying in circles. In Corinthians 12, these nine gifts are listed. Word of wisdom. This would be some supernatural word that you get from God. Word of knowledge. Wisdom tends to do with how you handle a situation. Knowledge tends to be something that you did not know before that you suddenly know now. In the book of Acts, this shows up as Agabus says, wow, there's going to be a famine over the next few years. Word of wisdom would be what Joseph got. Interprets the dream, says we need to build storehouses. Another one is faith. This is not just the faith that saves you. This is a supernatural trust in God. Oh, I don't know, something like Pharaoh's about to crush you and your whole nation, but you're standing in front of the sea suddenly believing that God will split it for you. Gifts of healing. How many of you call other people to pray for you to get healed? That's a great thing. Call them all. But who do they call when they get sick? Do they call you? See, I want these gifts to operate in our church. Miraculous powers. Prophecy. Distinguishing between spirits, speaking in tongues, or the interpretation of tongues. By the way, Corinthians 14.5, blanket statement, I wish you all spoke in other tongues. I didn't say that. The Apostle Paul did. Corinthians 14.5 says, I wish you all spoke in other tongues. When the Apostle Paul received the Holy Spirit, it doesn't say he spoke in other tongues. Did you know that? It simply says he received the Spirit. Corinthians 14.18, though, says... <laughs> speaking, the Apostle Paul says, I speak in other tongues more than all of you. And apparently that was an awful lot in the Corinthian church. I don't need to explain to you why these things are important. I can only tell you I don't have any desire to glory in your flesh. I have no desire to film you and show other people how holy I am. My sole desire is that you would interact with God in a new and exciting way. In my life, I prophesied long before I ever spoke in other tongues because I'd been taught it was of the devil and I didn't know. But since there's not been a day that has gone by where praying in the Holy Spirit did not edify me in some way. So we're going to worship. During worship, at any time, you're free to leave. During worship, at any time, you're free to come to the altar. I'm not going to do anything to anyone or for anyone that has not asked me to do that. You understand what I'm saying? Corinthians 14.1 says, Brothers, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. When the word says eagerly desire, this is like a man who is dying of thirst would long for water. 
eagerly, it's the strongest possible way to say the sentence in Greek. Either you eagerly desire the moving of God in your life, or you've got all you want. And I'm fine with whatever you decide. There will be no pressure on you. We're simply going to worship and have a good time. And on a personal note, I want to spend some time with my sister. She's facing a trial. And I want God's moving in her life in a powerful way. What we do won't move God. What we do will move us. On the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw who Jesus really was. The rest of the time, they didn't get to see it. The problem wasn't with Jesus, it was with them. Something about worship moves us to experience God in the way that He really is. And that's all we want. So if you want to worship with us, worship with us. If you leave, we won't think a thing about it. This is just how we do things. We don't have a big altar in the back door. You pretty well got to walk out in front of everybody, and that's okay. So as we sing and we worship... You're free to go. You're free to stay. If you come to me, I'm going to assume you want me to pray for you. So don't come to talk to me about fried chicken, okay? I love you all very much. Let's stand up. We'll pray, and then we'll begin to worship, and we'll see what happens from there.